Kia ora and welcome to Candidate Korido. I'm Ethan Manera. And I'm Zoe Mills, and we are the Salient News Editors. This is our 2023 election podcast, where we'll be chit-chatting with local candidates and the big dog party leaders to break down the dense and boring party politics and show students what's on offer this election season. Keep an eye out for all the upcoming interviews with Wellington Central and Rongatai candidates, and check out the written interviews each week in Salient. So welcome to the Salient Podcasting Suite. Um, for those who don't know, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Kia ora. I'm Julianne Genter. I'm a member of Parliament for the Green Party. I've been in Parliament for quite a long time now. I was first elected in 2011. At that time, I was one of the youngest female members of Parliament alongside Jacinda. How old were you then? I was, I was 32 yes. when I was elected and Jacinda Ardern and... Nikki Kay were sort of within the same year as me. Carmel Cipollone had been in Parliament, but I think was out that term. Mm. Um, and she's about my age as well, I think, or a little older. And then Holly Walker was elected at the same time as me, but was only in for one term. Things have massively changed since then. It's great. It's for the better. Much more diverse Parliament. Mm. Much different environment. A um, couple of different governments have gone through yeah. since then. <laughs> And then I had this huge privilege of being one of the first three green ministers in a government, but we were outside cabinet from 2017 to 2020. Uh, I had both my children since I've been in, you know, in the last five Mm. years. My son is going to be five next week and start school. And my daughter's, you know, just about 20 That's so exciting. She's not quite a year and a half. Oh, she's more than a year and a half, not quite two years. Mm. And I'm originally from the United States, but I left there oh, 21 years ago. What draw drew you to Aotearoa? I had friends from New Zealand. When I was 16, we moved from Southern California halfway through my junior year of high school, which is three out of four years, um, to Minnesota, to a small town in Minnesota, which is mm. like a totally different climate and culture. <laughs> and I made really good friends with a... Kiwi study abroad student who was a little bit older than me. And I guess we were both discussing our homesickness, me for California and her for, for Aotearoa. And it led me to believe, oh, that's a cool place. And then I made it friends with a couple of other Kiwis again when I moved back to California when I was 18. And then when I moved to Europe and, mm. um, I knew I didn't want to be in the U S because I just saw it as kind of politically doomed fair enough and i <laughs> coming across that kiwis are very friendly <laughs> drew you here but it was really the nature i was missing the nature mm. of california but didn't want to go back to the u.s i was living in europe i was living in france for three and a half years and i wanted i was seeing the limit of my ability to adapt to a european culture despite speaking the language mm. and so i thought i really wanted to study urban planning and i decided to come to new zealand to see what it was like. Yes. Yeah, and one thing led to another, and I ended up as a member of parliament. You said yourself that you've been in parliament for a long time now, since 2011, but this is the first time you've run for the Rongatai electorate. So, can you tell us the story of what drew you to when, why you decided to run for the Rongatai electorate? Well, a long time ago, I had identified Rongatai as one we could potentially win. Mm. Uh, that was before Chloe stood for central and won. Uh, our former co-leader when I was elected, Russell Norman, 
was our candidate in Rongatai, and I thought mm. when Annette King retired, maybe that would have been an opportunity for the Greens to win that seat. But Russell had stood down as co-leader, and we didn't have um, a sitting MP living in the electorate at the time. I didn't deliberately move, move to the electorate. <laughs> we moved to uh, Wellington when I was a minister because I had a baby, and it just yeah. you know, made sense for my whānau. We thought we might go back to Auckland, but then... We became really settled and bo- ended up buying a family home in Berenpur, yeah, which is in Rongatai. Yes. In 2020, I didn't stand as the candidate because we had an established candidate, um, Teal Croslin, and she'd done a lot of work with the mm. grassroots, and I didn't want to come in and be like, well, I'm a sitting MP, I shouldn't get this. Yeah, of course. Um, but then, you know, when it looked like Paul Eagle was going to stand down or at least run for mayor, I started thinking about how we could contest if there was a by-election and luckily yeah. there wasn't because we got our fabulous mayor Tori Fano but um, I talked to Teal and it turned out she'd moved out of the electorate and so it just it just all fell oh. into place that it made sense for me to stand and having a profile already meant and the fact that the incumbent Labour MP is not standing it meant there was a real opportunity for the Greens especially I think because there's this real it's a very progressive electorate National has no show in that electorate the Greens have already been coming in second without trying and so it's an electorate where I think people want to see a lot more action on climate change and inequality and the kind of solutions the Greens have consistently put forward Mm. and there's probably some frustration that a majority Labour government didn't do more. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Paul Eagle then as a past MP in Rangatai? Well, Paul was definitely underwhelming and that seems to be universally thought that he, you know, what was he doing? But also I think just it's hard for a Labour backbench MP to make much difference in that structure. So if people really want someone who's going to be a good local representative, but also who's going to fight for the big picture changes, Mm. they're better off having a green representative in that seat. How have the on the ground efforts been going? Has it ramped up a lot from previous years? Yes, it's massive. Like we've already knocked on 7,000 doors and made thousands of phone calls. Um, At this point in the campaign, we might have started door knocking. I think we've already covered more ground than the entire previous campaign. And this is a seat where we did have a pretty good ground campaign and a real organized volunteer effort. We've raised a record amount of funding for the campaign awesome. and had we've never spent on advertising before other than, you know, party vote green billboards and we've, you know, we basically will meet the advertising that's so good. Cap. Has it been enjoyable? Have there been any highlights from campaigning so far? Oh, there have been quite a few. One funny story is that I was out door knocking and I wasn't getting a great reception. Lots of people weren't home. I went yeah. down this long driveway and knocked on a door and somebody yelled at me from inside, who's it? And I thought, you know, do you want to and pay for the Greens? Just here to talk to you about the election. And the guy said, oh, sorry, nah. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just leave my leaflet here and, you know, thank you. And I carried on and the next door I knocked on is someone who works for us and so I know her real well. And a few weeks later, she texted me and said, good news story for you. My next door neighbor just showed up (laughs) with a giant billboard of you. He said, oh, yeah, she knocked on my door a few weeks back and I you know, the place was a mess. It takes my driveway's not very inviting. And I was in the middle of a bunch of work. And I thought, you know what, shoot, I'm going to vote for her. 
And now he's got 15 billboards of yours in his car and he's volunteering for your campaign. (laughs) The power of a single leaflet and a single door knock. That's insane. You just don't know. You don't know. You could think you're having a poor reception and it could be quite, you know, disappointing. Mm. But then it turns out you have won someone over and you've convinced them and they're willing to join your movement is that potential to me is really exciting is would you say this campaign is a serious like two ticks green campaign yes yes yeah definitely i mean we are throwing everything at winning the seat and lifting the party vote because the party vote makes up the proportions in parliament so it's really important for the number of mps we have so people who want to see more green mps in parliament definitely need to party vote green that's your best shot of the greens having influence Uh, But we also want to win the seat because we know that there is influence and status and resources attached to having that seat. And we want to send a message to the country and the government that we need more green solutions. Mm. This is a serious, the Greens are serious contenders. They need to be a core part of government. I really want to ask specifically about the Rongatai electorate and how you're going to be like a champion for that electorate in the way maybe Paul Eagle wasn't in the past. Um, And if you could summarize that down into like three key priorities that you you're campaigning on for Rongatai? Housing is a major issue in Rongatai. We need more affordable and sustainable housing. And one of the key focuses of the Greens is capping rents so they can't grow so fast mm-hmm. and investing in new sustainable housing. So we need more medium density housing. The public sector has to be involved in providing that the market's not going yeah. to provide. We need more options around social housing as well. And um a warrant of fitness for renters. So, you know, you're you're paying a lot for rent in Rongatai right now and you're not even guaranteed of having a healthy home and I think that's wrong. Yeah. Another big issue, obviously, is transport. That's an area that's very close to my heart. Uh, the buses, it's the highest bus use in the country is in the Rongatai electorate. The fourth highest bike u- use for commuting is in the Rongatai electorate. Ooh. The top three are in Christchurch, and then the next one's Rongatai. So it, it really does show that it's already a place where people want to use sustainable transport, but there's so much potential for it to be better. Buses have really languished, and so with my particular expertise in transport, I think I can really help champion for practical solutions yeah. that will mean more buses, better buses, light rail, and more options for people who want to use bikes and e-bikes to be able to get around safely. What are some of those like key things that are driving like the bus crisis at the moment that you're talking about and how would you seek to rectify that? It's really private ownership of the bus operations is part of it. I part of it is underfunding by the last national government so there wasn't long-term planning mm-hmm. and that's why we haven't got light rail why we lost the trolley buses because there wasn't that long-term planning and funding available for growing public transport then private operators you know got sold NZ bus for example got sold to an overseas equity firm who just didn't know or care about running good bus services and in that we lost a lot of bus drivers Housing is part of our bus driver shortage problem. Yeah. We need more affordable housing in Wellington so that people like bus drivers and firefighters and teachers and other core essential workers yes. can afford to live in the in their na- in this community where they're working. Yeah. Um so housing's part of it. We've championed public ownership of operations and raising bus driver wages, but we also need to tackle the the housing cost side of it. Um 
And I did neglect to mention, though, that I think there's an opportunity for ferries as well for the east. Mm. We know that eastern suburbs are much more reliant on private cars. And one way of quickly improving the situation, especially while we are constructing light rail, is to get one another electric ferry providing services to the Miramar Wharf. It's really interesting. There used to be one that went to Seatoon, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. And I think that Seatoon Ferry is planned to come back, mm. um, but we could also be having services right to the Miramar Wharf, which if you had connecting electric bus services, people could step, you know, it's like an eight-minute journey or less yeah. from Queen's Wharf to Miramar. So it's like half the time of the road or public transport at the moment. And then just a really quick three-minute bus service to get right into the airport, but it could also service the main uh, town centers on the peninsula. And people love sea transport, you know? It's beautiful. Is that something you'd look to um, grow on as an MP, is um, building ferry services to the electorate? Yeah, and East by West Ferries, who uh, have... They're like world leading. They built this fully electric mm. ferry, the Ikarere, which is already operating today's bay. And it's uh, it, it's been a huge success. They can use it for more services than they initially thought. They've learned so much about operations to be more energy efficient that they have taken over to their diesel ferries. Of course, we want to phase those out. But, mm. And they're, so they're quite keen to build more. And when you look at the differential in costs, like – it's only about 20, maybe 30 million to make the wharf changes that would enable those ferry services to Miramar. I mean, that's less than the business cases for some of the projects and let's get money <laughs> moving. You could actually yeah. deliver the infrastructure and services so much faster. And that's just been kind of missing. Mm. And the Greens did champion this as a shovel-ready project um, in 2020, uh, but it didn't quite make it over the line with the Labour and New yes. Zealand first government, but they've still done. They're doing more work, and it's, I think it's going to be incorporated into the regional land transport plan, and then it can get funding for services. But we it, we probably need a bit of that funding to just get the capital works done and get the boat built. Just to throw something out there, what do you think about an airport ferry service? Yeah, well, that that yes. essentially what I'm talking about yes. is the Miramar one is a. Airport. It would have an airport connection to it. Right. Yeah. I used to work for East by West. And oh, okay. On the ferries you know myself. About this, I do. Yeah. That's why I was like, interest. Let's talk about it. Um. Yeah. It'd be very cool. But lots of investment required for that. But a different kind of transport. You also mentioned light rail. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? You in support of that for Wellington? Yes. Yes. And it needs to be the priority. So uh, one of the problems I see with Let's Get Willy Moving is that it's still kind of focused on road-based transport uh, through, you know, the Mount Vic Tunnel mm-hmm. and the Basin. And that's hugely costly and carbon-intensive and will take years, I mean, probably a decade to deliver. We just need to get on with the light rail. You can actually build it pretty fast. It doesn't have to be that disruptive. Um It's been transformational in George Street in Sydney, on the Gold Coast in Canberra, obviously many American and European cities. Um, So New Zealand just really needs to be able to get on with it. And I think, again, this is an area where having transport expertise can really help. But I I know that um, the proposal at the moment is stage one to Newtown and then right into Island Bay. So one of the big arguments for it is not just better public transport services on a corridor where there's a lot of demand for buses, um, and you're basically getting the bus congestion out of the corridor yeah. by shifting to light rail. It's also housing because 
you know, we need more homes in Wellington to, for it to be more affordable. And you can do really high quality density done well. We're talking townhouses, really nice apartments like they have in European cities that can go in that corridor uh, and be serviced by the light rail. So those two things go hand in hand. Nice. Um, and within that, let's get Wellington moving. Um, you're a supporter of that. What's your thoughts on the policy? Because it has been a little bit controversial throughout Wellington. Yeah, I mean, look, let's get Wellington moving is kind of a delivery vehicle. Yeah. And I would say it hasn't been excellent at delivery and there's, there's ways to improve that. But the idea of... Um, more, I mean, the public are clearly in favor of light rail. Like every poll shows that they keep voting for politicians who promise them light rail. <laughs> we know Wellington wants it. And we also know it'll be the most effective solution. And same with the Golden Mile. You know, it may not be a perfect proposal, but it's really, really good. It's going to be a massive improvement to decar that central city area mm-hmm. um, and improve access for everyone. Um, but I do think that the aspects of it that involve billions of dollars on tunnels that are mainly for motor vehicles, that part of it could is kind of slowing the whole thing down and is unnecessary and doesn't really make a lot of sense given the climate crisis that we're facing and what we know about cities, what works for urban transport. Yeah, fair enough. Also, just to keep pushing you on transport stuff, um, you're often perceived probably as the cycling MP in Parliament. Um, do you have any thoughts about circle lanes and the kind of criticism there has been around um, reduce, increasing circle lanes, reducing space for cars within Rongatai and also in the Wellington CBD? Yeah, this kind of concern is basically universal, but there's no arguing with geometry, mm-hmm. right? Bikes take way less space than cars. If you want to enable more people to move around the city at lower cost, Bikes are a way better way to do that than cars. And generally speaking, you can even improve the flow of cars in some areas by getting rid of that on-street parking. That is, it, it actually slows people down. Not many people can park in those on-street car parks. And then if someone's pulling into or out of it, it blocks a whole lane of traffic. So. Mm. Um, if you take yeah, that I'm lane, terrible at parallel parking. <laughs> but it's it's ironic. You just I feel like people who are accustomed to driving everywhere find it a little bit hard to see how it's other cars causing them inconvenience, mm-hmm. not people on bikes. People on bikes are actually doing them a favor by not <laughs> being in a car, and that's it. Just seems like a universal phenomenon that happens even in cities where. We think of them as being very friendly to, you know, walking, cycling, public transport, uh, like Manhattan in New York. Yes. You know, 90% of the people were not in cars and 10% were, but the 10% in cars were taking 90% of the public space on the street. And when they proposed changes to Times Square to basically pedestrianize it, people freaked out and said it would be the death of Times Square. No one's going to come here anymore. And you're like, well, hardly anyone is coming in a car anyway. (laughs) So you're actually creating the possibility for more people to get here. Mm. Um, So is that kind of how you might respond to like criticisms about how this might affect local businesses and the efficiency of people being able to access those businesses? Yeah, it's basically universal that all the research shows that retailers – overestimate the importance of car parking and cars to their business and they don't realize how much better it could be if you make a more people-friendly mm. environment. But let, let's think about this. Like, 
you can't drive up to the shop in the mall. You know what I mean? Yeah, you drive to the car park and then you have to walk into the mall and then you walk to the shop. So it's mm. not like you have direct car access to shops in the mall. But what the mall has provided is a car-free environment where people can spend time. And yeah. if we could do that in downtown areas, which is where a lot of people already live, then it's a nicer place for people to spend time and it's actually better for the local businesses. Um, but you don't really need to get them all on side because I think we need to focus more on the fundamental rights of the people who live in the city. And if a street is public space, then the priority of that street should be the safe and efficient movement of people. And that has to outweigh the storage of private property for a few people. And children, especially, cannot drive. They deserve a safe network of infrastructure that enables them to be independent and get around their community. And that's what protected bike lanes are for. Yes. Is making it possible for our kids to get places in the city without having to be chauffeured around in cars by mom and dad. Huge win for the kids. And they're like, give them a bit of independence. Independence. Um, they actually learn better if they walk or cycle to school than if they're dropped off. Mm. Like there's some studies from Denmark, which were quite showed that very clearly that physical activity and that engagement in the environment is really healthy for them. But then if you don't have mom and dad don't have that stress of having to chauffeur all the time every day, um, they save time. And then there's fewer cars on the road if mom and dad can get, you know, they're working from home or they're using public transport or they're able to use an e-bike to get to work. Mm. Uh, the family can bike together on a, a protected bike lane. And that can be a really great experience for them. And you still have lanes for cars. There are lanes for cars everywhere. There's still heaps of parking, like, you know, on the Adelaide Road route, it's less than 3% of the parking has been removed. So there's plenty of parking. It's just about managing it so that people have access to it when they need it. And of course, you'll still need disabled access, but not all disabled people can drive either. So you find those protected bike lanes can actually be mobility scooter lanes. And if you're designing them well, they can improve access for people with disabilities as well. Right. Thank you for all of that. We got a bit stuck on transport there, but I'm glad we did. I'm glad we took the time to talk about it. But um, I didn't hear about your third priority for the electro. Yeah. We'll backtrack right back to that. We got housing. We've got some transport. Um, what is the number three thing? Well, I think climate change is really important and climate action is really important for people. But really how we take action on climate change and future-proofing our city is very closely linked to housing and transport. Mm -hmm. So They're all interlinked, I like Affordable housing and transport and lower emissions and creating nicer cities. So maybe the third priority is in that public services space, you know, where uh, the Greens announced our priority of free dental and tax changes to make the tax system fair so that we can properly fund our public services. We have a regional hospital in the electorate. We have a lot of inequality in the electorate. Um, so there's people really well off on high incomes owning property that's worth quite a lot. And then there's renters, people in social housing, mm. council housing, refugees who've been resettled. Um, and a lot of students who are basically living in poverty because... We haven't properly supported them to study. So closing that gap and providing support 
and universal public services for everyone through a fair tax system would be our mm. other party that I think would very much affect the Rongatai electorate. Tell me a little bit more about the tax system that's in the Greens policy. Well, we proposed a relatively simple but comprehensive series of changes. First 10,000 tax-free, so that's a tax cut for 95% of mm-hmm. New Zealanders, more money for them. At the bottom end, a higher top tax rate, over 180,000. So aligning us with Australia. So you can't really say, oh, people are just going to go to Australia to avoid this. <laughs> people are going to Australia because they have better public services, because they have a fair tax system, because they have a capital gains tax and they have higher tax rates right. at the top and a bigger tax-free threshold at the bottom. And so, I guess that's really relevant to young people. We're the ones who are all looking at going to Australia because the cost of living crisis is felt less there. Yeah. And some of that is because they actually do a bit more. I'm not saying it's nirvana, but mm-hmm. it's pretty ironic that people on the right argue against progressive tax changes on the basis that people go to Australia where they have a progressive, more progressive tax system and better funded infrastructure and mm. services. The key component of our tax changes, though, is the wealth tax, which sees the top 1%, and I'm rounding up here because it's probably less than 1%, of wealth owners paying uh, 2.5% on assets over $4 million if they're a couple or over $2 million as an individual. And that raises a whole lot of revenue in a fair way because if, you, if you're making money off owning something at the moment, you don't really pay the same tax as if you are working. So it's kind of unfair that nurses and teachers and cleaners and firefighters paying tax on their income, but people who are born into wealth or who have got wealth start getting a big return on what they own from doing nothing, and they don't pay income tax on that. So the wealth tax helps to make this tax system fair in that way, raises a lot of revenue that we can use to pay for a guaranteed minimum income. That would be for students, anyone who's not in paid work. Um, of $385 a week, and there's top-ups if you have children and if you're, on, you know, if you're sick. Other, there's other factors that might mean you get more money than that, but guaranteed minimum income of $385 per week. And uh, we can also pay for free dental services, free universal public health dental mm. services. We can also pay for, uh, you know, our our other policies, some of which are yet to be announced, but. We show there's more still coming. The Greens have announced so much policy (laughs) that I'm I'm just wafting through it all the time, and there's more to come. (laughs) Two things I want to pick up there Um, with the guaranteed minimum income versus campaigning on a steady wage for all at the moment. I don't know if you're familiar about that, but I'd like to know if you are in support of that campaign and uh, um, universal income for students. Yeah, and that I mean basically that we're proposing something similar. Do you know what's the rate of the campaign? Is it just the concept of a I don't have it off the top of my head, actually. I should. That's on me. Um, it is very similar. I think it's 385 as well. Oh, okay. Um, 385 as well, but it's very similar to what the Greens' current amount is. Well, but yeah, of course, we support the campaign, and I think it makes a good point that education is an investment in the society, and people need to be able to live to study. Mm. And if they're being forced to work crazy hours or live in, you know, terrible circumstances where they can't turn on the heater in their flat or they can't pay for food, then it's just outrageous that we let people live in poverty like that while they're studying. And on top of it, they're 
possibly getting debt that they have to pay back. So, yeah. So, yeah, we absolutely support. And I would say our policy covers that. And it goes further because it would cover everyone, not just students. Right on. Um, And the second thing I want to pick up on is with the wealth tax discussions. I'd I'd really like to know about the feasibility of this because it's not only opposed by the right, but also the centre-ish as well with the Prime Minister, like, ruling out some key things like capital gains tax. So, like, with the Greens policy, what is um, the feasibility for voters to see this actually come into eventuation? Well, I mean, it's up to the people and it's up to how they vote. I mean, Chris Hopkins is Prime Minister right now and he's made it clear he's not, Labour's not taking any progressive action really in the tax system. Mm -hmm. But we have an election and voters will vote. And luckily we have MMP, which means there's no risk in voting for the Green Party Every vote we get helps us get more representation and makes it more likely that we'll be able to be a substantial part of the next government. Um, And then, you know, then it will be down to negotiations. And we probably won't be able to get everything in our policy unless we get a green majority government, which I think we should have. (laughs) Um, And someday we will. We will. Someday we will uh, at least have a green dominant government, I have no doubt. I like that positivity. Um, it's happened in uh, Germany, in Baden-Württemberg. There's a state of 12 million people that was always pretty conservative, CDU in Germany, like mm-hmm. center-right-led. And the Greens uh, dominated the local councils and built some really amazing green cities like Freiburg and Stuttgart. It's a part of the world that is comparable to New Zealand in many ways because they have agriculture, uh, viticulture, horticulture, tourism, but they have a lot of manufacturing as well, um, thanks to some good industrial pro-worker policies that they have federally Mm. in Germany. Um, So, And the Greens went from being the third largest party at 11% to the next election being the second largest party at 24%, but they were able to form a government with the German version of the Labour Party uh, the Social Democrats or SDP, and they were the they just got slightly more votes than Labour, so they went from third to second. But they had the Green Prime Minister, and the next election, the Greens were the largest party. Now they got a bit over thirty percent, and they were forced to form a government at that time with uh, the CDU, the centre right party, because the SDP didn't get enough mm. votes. But it does show that the Greens. It's possible. The Greens are. Uh, a growing movement globally because of the challenges we're facing, like mm. climate change, is becoming so undeniable. And even though all the other parties talk about climate change, they don't have it in their DNA. The founders of the Green Party were talking about climate change in the 1980s mm. and 90s and proposing solutions then. Those solutions are still relevant. But, um, you know, while the larger parties talk about climate change, they don't seem to really understand what is needed to take action. And I think people have seen the Greens in government being very practical, very effective. Actually, young people, I think, are much more likely to vote Green. But we need to convince the older people who started voting for a party before the Greens were in Parliament Mm. that actually Greens are a serious option. I'll touch on climate change now since that's come up. And that's something I'd really like to ask is about your thoughts on the Norangatai electorate for climate change adaptation. Because I think we've seen something that's really significant for local MPs and even for councils is um, responding to when a natural disaster happens in an electorate um, and making plans for things like climate adaptation. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, we need to do a lot, but there's also really good opportunities 
Um, one of the things in the electorate that is so special, Atonga, is the marine reserve that we already have on the south coast. Mm. Uh, something that I personally really love and try to go down and have a swim and a snorkel as often as I can because it's really magic. It turns out that marine reserves and kelp forests can be incredibly effective at reducing storm surges. And so as sea levels rise, having more marine reserves and kelp forests is a natural way of buffering against uh, damage. In fact, it might be more effective mm. than seawalls and certainly better for the natural environment. Um, so is that kind of like nature-based solutions, something you would support increasing? Yeah, absolutely. We need to look at those nature-based solutions. Uh, obviously, it depends on the amount of sea level rise. Uh, there'll probably be a certain amount that is inevitable, like that would overwhelm either a seawall or the natural kelp forest. So, mm. but kelp forests are also part of how we restore nature. It's part of it's part of emissions reduction. So, that we need those kind of integrated solutions. And it's the same for water management. You know, eighty five percent of the streams in Wellington are piped. And some of those, it would probably make more sense to surface them. You know, they've been piped yeah. because of roads and because of, um, you know, just that 20th century engineering mindset. And we're starting to get a lot more water. And if we can do more planting, for example, I've been talking to some eco-sensitive or water-sensitive design experts uh, about Houghton Valley, where um, there was an old landfill in the valley and it's been covered over by fields and there's a school there and a play center and a playground. But the tip wasn't properly sealed. And now when it rains a lot, there's a little creek that's piped, but it goes into the stormwater outflows. Mm. And so much water comes in. It goes into the tip and then goes down the valley in the stormwater system or out of the stormwater system and goes into our marine reserve with leachate, like toxic leachate from the tip. But there are really cool solutions. Like if we planted up, sort of like did a surface level level stream to capture that water along one part of the valley and planted it up with um, wetlands, like little cascading wetlands, mm -hmm. you can create a kind of stormwater um, detention and, uh, you know, it actually cleans up the water before it gets down to the bottom. You still might have to divert some and treat it um, from the piped system, but that's an... It's like an intervention that helps absorb the excess water, but also restores biodiversity, mm. also creates more nature in the city, which we know is good for people's health and happiness and well-being. And that's the something kids... we can apply to Rongatai. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. So Houghton Valley's in Rongatai. Oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. on me. <laughs> no, no. So Houghton Valley's like, you know where, oh, maybe you don't. Um, it's, it's actually near Berenpore, um, but it's like up over the ridge from Berenpore is Houghton Valley. And yes. And then there's Hatton Bay. So it's like there's Island Bay, there's Ophiro Bay, Island Bay, Hatton Bay. Yeah, I've got it in my head now. Flower Thank Bay. you. Princess Bay. Yeah. Sweet. Um, okay, we're going to pivot to housing now because we have been touching on housing this whole conversation. So we should probably talk about it specifically. And it's a really big issue for students, really big issue for Rangatai. Um, so if you could just expand a bit on what you think the real key issues with the housing crisis we have, especially for renters, a lot of students are renters, and that's a lot of the problems we're facing. And then what um, you as a Rongatai MP would seek to do about that kind of crisis. Yeah, Rongatai has a much higher than average proportion of renters. Yes. And 
there is a lot of council housing, which is good because that's relatively well managed, some of it. Um, but the private housing stock is in a dire state and renters don't have enough protection still. So the, we have the healthy home standards, but those aren't particularly effective and they're not enforced well. Mm -hmm. We proposed a really comprehensive housing policy that had the Green Party's pledge to renters, beefing up enforcement, fixing the healthy home standards so they actually result in a warm, dry, livable environment. Yes. Um, and, and also one where people don't have to pay a fortune on their heating bills. You know, because like mm -hmm. there's the opportunity for to improve the houses themselves, which reduces electricity demand. But landlords often don't have the incentive to do that because the renters have to pay the power bill. So um, so by requiring them to kind of build to a better standard and put in energy efficient heating, that's something we can do. Yes. And then, you know, the very short term thing that we can and must do is cap rent growth. So just saying, look. Landlords can't put up the rent or push people out and put up the rent stratospherically every year. Like, you know, 3% a year. That's reasonable. We already have very high rates of rent. So you shouldn't be able to increase the rent more than 3% a year. And that shouldn't matter on the tenancy. So there's not an incentive to keep people out to put the rent up. We just, you know, smooth that path in the growth of rent so that it sticks within what is a normal target for inflation. And if, you know, I guess if people can demonstrate they've made some massive improvements to the property, then they could potentially put, you know, like they've totally gutted it and renovated it and it's a much nicer yes. place, then they can put up the rent. But I think rents are already like quite high so that we need to slow down the growth quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And then in the interim, we need to build more. And one way we build more is freeing up the zoning, which has sort of happened through the spatial planning process at a city council level. But the other, the, the other factors that are limiting um, investment in high quality density done well is the lack of infrastructure. So that's where um, government needs to partner with council to um, fix the water issues. And actually, just we just need the public sector, whether it's at a council level um, or Kainga Ora level. I don't. I don't think it's good to entirely focus on Kainga Ora. Ora. We 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 said we want Kainga Ora to be able to borrow more and build more, but we also want councils to be able to do that with their you know mm. to expand their um, number of council homes. And so it's then, like supporting a really strong public sector, public yes. housing. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I mean, basically, you need the public sector to be involved in the provision of housing. And yes. Again, if you don't mind, an overseas example in Sweden. You know, they had a population not that much bigger than New Zealand's back in the 70s, about six, six and a half million. And in 10 years, they built one million homes. And in doing so, like, I mean, I, Kiwi Build was just aiming at 100,000 homes. Mm. So one tenth that over 10 years. But in 10 years, they actually built a million homes. And they set up a bunch of publicly owned housing corporations that are like experts at doing not just housing but like the whole integrated master planning design so you know apartments around public transport stops with mm. childcare and shops and a park and you know all of that stuff integrated and and probably not all of it was perfect but they did manage to massively increase the supply which has kept which did keep housing affordable in Sweden for quite a long time yeah so it's thinking beyond just like building more houses and connecting it to the wider area of things yeah, that's it. It needs. I mean, just houses alone 
doesn't help people because people need to be able to get to jobs and the shops and the dentist and the doctor and the early childhood center and the kindergarten. And, you know, you need to do it all. And developers aren't going to do that. I mean, private developers just are not in a position to think about both the social and physical infrastructure. And, of course, if the public sector is doing it, we have an incentive to build to the highest standard so that we have healthier people because then we have fewer kids going to the emergency department Mm. with asthma or other respiratory issues. You know, it's like we're saving on other aspects of the public spend when we design and build well and do it for public good rather than maximizing private profit. What is your personal housing situation? You mentioned before that you bought a house. Yeah, we are so lucky that we were able to buy a house. (laughs) I just want to say we're so lucky. And it's because, you know, we had jobs that were on high salaries and we got in kind of before the massive spike. Mm -hmm. But also we just got lucky and we built this and we bought a um, 1930s bungalow in Barrenpoor that had been renovated and we bought it off, you know, people were pretty, very green. So they had like removed all the lead paint and um, had like a big... Like 14 mature fruit trees in the garden. Like <laughs> That's a chickens. gold mine. Oh, my god! We have chickens. We have plums and figs and apples. You and must have so much space. And feeders. Yeah, it's, it's bigger than I expected. Like, I'm all about apartment living. And prior to that, mm-hmm. um, we lived in some – I lived in a heritage, like, 1930s apartment in Auckland that was, like, definitely density done well before the urban planning rules came in. Yes. And then I, I same 1940s Art Deco apartment in Mount Vic is where I stayed when I'd come down for Parliament. But um, we needed to find a place to live kind of when my son was just a baby because we realized the apartment had lead paint in it. And so, mm. and we tried looking for rentals, and the rentals were so outrageously expensive. And there weren't that many that were healthy and kind of warm and dry and in a place where you could easily cycle. And that was a big priority for me was yeah. to live somewhere where I could still ride a bike. So um, so we ended up in Barampur and the, lucked into this amazing place, which is bigger than I thought we needed and a bigger garden. But it ended up being, you know, so I'd like to see, I would like in my neighborhood more density done well. And yes. I don't want the character provisions to prevent other people from living in our neighborhood. And I think if, you know, when you do um, me- medium rise apartments that have are done well, like the apartments I lived in with like two or three walls that have windows and they're around a shared courtyard, then people get the option of that garden. You know, like yes. as a household, as a working person, I do not have enough time to benefit from the garden and to pay enough attention to it. So I'd much rather live in like a place where the whole community can benefit from the garden mm. and you get more green space that way, but you get more homes, you know? And so that's the kind of design idea that we need to bring into New Zealand. And I guess the reason it hasn't been here is because we've had a bunch of planning rules that have prevented it. You mentioned the heritage provisions before. Do you support um, removing heritage protections for housing in Wellington? Let's distinguish between heritage and character. Yes. Because Heritage has value and there's very clearly defined aspects that might say that a building does have heritage value. But putting a character layer over a whole neighborhood and saying this neighborhood cannot have higher density housing because the character is important, I think is problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as nice as those older places might be, 
a lot of them do need to get rebuilt to be modern and healthy, one. And two, that's some of the most valuable land in the city. And when land is valuable and lots of people want to be somewhere, that's a sign you need more homes there. And it can, and it can be done with good design. But I think that is where we need more publicly led master planning and design and building because when developers are building to maximize profit, they're not thinking about the community values. Whereas um, a public organization or a community or iwi organization is thinking long-term, is thinking about the community values. They're much more likely to produce design that is going to be attractive and that people are going to like. Yeah. Design that's livable for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've talked a lot about international examples. We've had heaps of international examples here, which I think is really good. But I'd just like to ask then about how you think um, Wellington um, matches up against international counterparts in other international cities in terms of its housing and its transport and its development. And like, are we behind international places? Or I think Wellington has so much potential. I mean, it's a beautiful place to live. And the original founders were thinking you know long term when they established the town belt like the town belt's an amazing asset that is is a is good design to mm. make sure that everybody kind of has easy access to nature spaces we need to do more to you know enable conservation and biodiversity to thrive in those places um you know we've got the marine reserve that's amazing it's got a lot of potential the the two areas where I think it could be better are really transport and housing. And I think if you get those things right, then everything else starts to fall into place. Obviously, there's the incomes piece is really important and um, sorting out how we fund tertiary education and yes. public services like firefighters and emergency. All of those things have been neglected for a couple of decades because of the ideology of the 1980s and 90s was to keep government small and to reduce taxes on the will, on the wealthy and let, you know, kind of super rich people get richer. And there's a lot of privatization and that affects Wellington and it affects all of Aotearoa, but, and no, not to mention colonization before that. Yes, there's quite a big history of things here. Yeah. Um, gonna put, we've talked about so many big issues. Thank you for bearing with me while I pepper you with questions there. Um, but I'll try to wrap us up into the end. I'd like to ask a couple more questions before we finish. But firstly, what would you say about your opponents in Rongatai, um, the Labour and National candidates? Do you have any um, thoughts on them or their policies or why they shouldn't be the Rongatai MP? Uh, well, they're both lovely people, and I'm sure that they're standing for all the right reasons, yes. and they want the best for the community, and they would, um, you know, they they want to represent the community. I think that inherently those parties don't really grasp the changes that are needed to deliver. <laughs> so that, you know, I think that's the advantage of the Green Party and why people should vote for the Green candidate. And vote green in this election because if we're going to tackle climate change, environmental degradation, public proper funding of public services and infrastructure, housing, you ha you have to get all parts of it. You know, like yes. you can't just do part of it. And I think we've seen that with the last term of the ma Labour majority government that with all the best intentions, 
they haven't really been able to shift the dial and deliver for a lot. They've made some baby steps in the right direction, and that's good, and, you know, they should be applauded for that. But they're not taking on the bigger structural change issues, and as long as they do that, we're at risk of going backwards. Yes, and you've talked a lot today about kind of like integrated solutions or integrated problems, solutions to multiple problems at once. Sweet. Um, if you're okay with it, I'd love to do a really quick, um, quick fire round to finish us off. Um, start us off. We've talked about so many issues that are all relevant to students, but speaking to student voters specifically in Rongatai, um, can you give us like a 30-second quick pitch? Uh, your vote is powerful. We can work together to change the system. We're so lucky in Aotearoa to have MMP. That was something that you know, our forebears in the Green Party organized and fought for a more democratic electoral system, which means a, a smaller party can get into government and can make a difference and can become a larger and major party. Um, students are facing a lot of different challenges right now, the climate crisis being the most obvious, but also cost of living. And uh, I believe the Greens have these solutions for students and will have your back. Mm. And but ultimately, the power will go to the people who show up. And for a few decades, it's been the older people, the people with money who show up in elections. But we've shown in Wellington that we can get progressive representation at the local and regional level. Um, and we can do that at central level, too, if people get involved and people make their voice heard. So get voting. Your vote matters. <laughs> yes. Um, what is your favorite place to eat in Rongatai? Oh, wow. Oh, that's going to be a slightly challenging one uh, because there's quite a few places. But because I was just there last night, I'll give a shout out to the Vogelmorn Bowling Club. Mm. I don't know if people have been up there, but they're always running cool events. They've got a cool cafe and they've right now they've got a um, pickled and smoked, which is like a local um, food provider. It's, it's quite delicious. And before that, they had... Um, the um, Lebanese uh, place that has now they've moved into Central so I can't list them but they're pretty amazing and I'm just blanking on the name but <laughs> damn it uh, Damascus Syrian yes, sorry yes. it's not Lebanese it's Syrian very bad of me yeah Syrian Damascus they started out at the Vogelmorn Bowling Club hey. definitely worth checking out so Vogelmorn upstairs is a bar and they're often running cool events and then they have like family friendly cafe toy library in the morning nice what a centre um, what's your favourite place to grab a drink or a coffee in Rodongatai then uh, well then I'd have to mention people's coffee in Newtown mm. but close competition is black coffee in Newtown <laughs> and um, oh yeah black coffee is my favorite yeah they're both great yes. and they have great vibe um do you own a car we we do at the moment but we sort of got it by accident from some people who are moving back to germany got a car by accident <laughs> yeah and i was like the, our, my friends were trying to sell their honda jazz very efficient little uh, manual car and we were thinking about getting a a car that could be shared between three families in, on my street because we all have cargo bikes and we all have kids, two kids, all three families have two kids mm. about the same age difference. And the problem with the car share was Mevo wasn't close enough to us. We weren't in the zone. And um, 
you need car seats and the car seats really complicate the car share thing. So we were yeah. going to share the car. But now Mevo has just launched in Rongatai. I mean, it was already in Newtown, but it's now in Berenpore and in Island Bay. And so we are considering whether we can get rid of the car now and just use Mevo because they have EVs. Yeah. And we don't use the cars very often. Um, it's just like can be handy to have on hand, especially when our grandpa, you know, the grandparents are around. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Or if you need to go out of town uh, with the kids. But I'd much rather just use the car share. It's just yeah. the. Do you find Kasha stuff like Mevo good? I haven't used Mevo personally before, but it's like on my list to try out. I, I think CarShare is needs to be an integral part of our public transport network and making car use available to people is the single best way to kind of reduce car ownership and all the land that's taken up by cars. And then that enables more people to live in the area. And then mm. when more people are there, it's easier to walk and cycle and take public transport. And yeah, giving people access to a car without having to own it is a huge benefit to society, but also to those people because then they don't have to spend $8,000 a year owning a car that might get hit on the side of the road in Wellington. <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, car share is super important. And I, I do find the Mevo service really, really great. Um, City Hop was the first car share. And sometimes we do use their vans, um, you know, because my partner's really into woodworking and goes to Bunnings and stuff. And, oh my gosh, um, that must be fun. He usually goes on his cargo bike and just demonstrates that you yeah. can carry anything on a cargo bike. Like in woodworking, is that just is that figures or is that furniture making? Or? He made yeah, it's more like furniture. He made my son's bunk bed in like three days, and it looks like a that's designer amazing bunk talent. Bed. It's incredible. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, you've already mentioned you own your house, but are you a landlord? Uh, no, I'm not a landlord. I was briefly because uh, I owned my apartment in Mount Vic and when we bought the house in Berenpore we couldn't like organize ourselves mm -hmm. to sell the other place so we just rented it out temporarily but I think we were good landlords but we didn't want to be landlords <laughs> and we sold that place uh, to a first home buyer well below the market rate at the time because yeah we were just like we don't want to be part of this nutty thing um, and finally last thing what makes the Dongotai Electorate so special? Uh, there's lots of things that make it special <laughs> I think it's the the combination of an urban environment with a lot of diversity and celebration of that diversity and the stunning natural environment that's all around us and that we get to have both of those things. And I've been astounded at the community engagement. Like each little part of Rongatai seems to have really active community members doing really cool things like the Vogelmorn Bowling Club yes. or the... Houghton Valley Progressive Association and the Seeds to Feeds. I went to a couple of those around Rongatai. And it's just like amazing to see that community level um, people working together to find awesome solutions and to have a good time. And that's what we need more of in the future. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Do you have any other final notes you'd like to add just generally or to students? Because that's all my questions. Oh, thank you so much. It was really nice to have this discussion. Thanks for listening to <laughs> Milan. Um, I just encourage people definitely vote. Talk to your family members about voting. Talk to your friends about voting. Um, 18 to 39-year-olds outnumber over 60s and could totally be decisive in the outcome of this election mm -hmm. if they turn out. And we need people who are invested in the so future. So get voting. So, no, don't just vote. <laughs> get out and campaign and get other people to vote because it will make a difference. Cool. Thank you so much.